Today on Globe Screen, we're so honored to have Jonathan Younger, co-president of Millennium Media, a producer of such films as Rambo, Last Blood, Angel Has Fallen, and more recently, The Outpost, amongst many other films. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. So how how has uh, Millennium been holding up, especially with the whole crisis of 2020 in respect to um, COVID? And look, it's been difficult for everybody around the world. The first thing I want to say is that I hope people are safe and following the rules. And, um, you know, it's a crazy time, but uh, we used it as um, a time to kind of just refigure out some things like with our franchises, we were developing a lot, we're staying strong. The good thing about our company is that we're lean and mean. And so um, we are really able to plan hopefully for the future and hope that this thing will be behind us so that we can go and make more films. The good thing is, is actually during COVID, we were able to get a movie shot and in the can, a movie called Till Death that we did starring Megan Fox. And that's in the can. And in a few weeks, we're going into prep on another one called Abizu, which is a genre film that we've developed. I, I actually wrote it, wrote it with my friend. Wrote nice. And, um, and we were able to sell it. And so hoping that Europe, you know, depending on seeing what happens with the rest of the lockdown that's going on in Europe, we're hoping to start prep in a few weeks. But as far as doing the big stuff, that's more for next year. You know, it's been very difficult to get things like insurance and the COVID insurance policies and stuff. So we're navigating those waters, but I'm very confident that will that next year we'll be able to shoot the big ones. I think I, I really hope that this thing will be behind us and maybe there'll be a vaccine or something that's needed to, um, put people's minds at ease and uh, make it safe to go back to work properly. I think so. I think uh, like George Harrison said, all things must pass. Yes. So, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. That's right. So you guys also have a film studio in Bulgaria. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And you guys do a, uh, shoot a lot of films out there. Yeah, we shoot a lot of our, we shoot most of our own films out there. We do combinations between using the facilities in Bulgaria, which are amazing. I mean, it sits on a couple hundred acres. We've got 18 sound stages, We've got a New York back lot, a London back lot. We were able to build the facade of St. Paul's Cathedral on a one-to-one -one scale for London has fallen. Which wow. was crazy. That's incredible. We've got our own visual effects house. We have the largest water tank in Europe and the crews in Bulgaria are really just something. I mean, I just learned today that uh, our makeup makeup department is up for a nomination for the outpost. Nice. So, um, and our cinematography, our DP Lorenzo. I mean, we've got a lot of great. There's so much talent out there. It's unbelievable. It's a great place to work. And um, and a nomination. And we're working on building other studios in other countries. Right now, outstanding. And so, I'd like to discuss a little bit about the outpost. Because sure. I, I had the chance to watch it the other night and it, it blew me away, honestly. And uh, it's funny. Funny enough, I had a conversation about it with a friend of mine last night. And I didn't even mention that I was having you on the podcast that we were just talking about the movie itself for about 20 minutes. And uh, he loved it as well. Fantastic. I bought it on Amazon. I even went online and wrote a five star review. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Look, it's a, it's. It's one that's near and dear to our hearts. Um, been trying to make the outpost for seven years. 
and um, you know, we just wanted to tell an authentic story. And I, you know, I came across um, a YouTube video years ago where Clint Romache was on David Letterman and he was telling the story of what happened. And when he was telling the story, I was like, damn, this is a movie. I, at that point, I didn't know Jake Tapper had written a book. I didn't know that there was a competing script. I didn't know any of that stuff. All I knew is we were trying to find the rights and then which led us down the rabbit hole of meeting Paul Tamasi and uh, finding out that it was set up at one point at Universal and with Sam Raimi and then and it wasn't anymore. And we became close with Paul Merriman, who used to work, who's one of our producers who used to work for Sam Raimi. And when he left Sam Raimi, Sam Raimi let him go with the project. And so he came to us and they walked in the room with Rod Lurie. And it was so crazy because <laughs> we were sitting in, uh, in the conference room. And mind you, this is after like, at this point, it's about five years of trying to get this done. And Rod Lurie is now attached as the director. And he comes in and tells a room full of executives set that he wants to shoot 90% of the movie in Warners, which is like, as a producer, it's a very scary thing to hear. But when he said it, he said it with such conviction. I was one of the ones in the room that said, yes, let's do it that way. It makes sense. You know, we can pull it off. And it just all came together, you know, um, between the cast with Scott and Caleb and Orlando. And, and the rest of the guys that we got, I mean, Taylor John Smith, who plays Bunderman, is unbelievable in the movie. And Jack Kessie and Jacob Scipio and Will Attenborough and George Arbison and, and um, Ernest Cavazos. Like all of these guys that we found to be in this movie just blew us away. Um, and, you know, it's... Uh, it's, it's been a crazy journey, but thank God people are noticing. I mean, the movie's doing so well. Um, it's so highly rated and critically acclaimed that we think we might have a shot at the awards. I believe it because it, it really surprised me. You know, I just kind of went in not knowing what to expect, not knowing too much about it. Uh, and then I really, you know, in the past, I've loved movies like The Hurt Locker, and I really th- thought this movie was just right up there with the best of them, The, the Hurt Locker yeah. and Platoon and you know, movies in that vein. Well, there's actually an homage. We made it. Our, we knew it. it it's a, Look, Platoon is an incredible film. So to say something like we have the platoon of today, I think it's a little insane um, to say something like that. But I will say that there is an homage to Platoon in the movie that at the end, when you see um, when you see the big hole that was blown up in the ground, with the bodies that, that that that's actually an homage to platoon that's right yeah so we knew that we were um we knew we were aware that um we were you know this movie was standing on the backs of all the other great war films i can see why and i think it ties in it's a testament to to the filmmaking and it's actually really cool that you were in it as well oh. so yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i i think it's really hard to pull off an action film that's this is this is my biggest gripe with some action films uh of current the current era versus action films of the past but i think that you guys do a good job with is that it's an action film but it's also a character driven film so it's like the action is really impactful but then you're also really invested into the characters you know sure i mean look you don't unless you don't listen i'm sure you're a filmmaker so you know this but unless 
you don't give a shit about your characters, you don't care about the movie. Exactly. You know, you can have the most spectacular action in the world. And um, but if the movie, if the story isn't good, if the characters aren't good, if you can't identify with them, then there's really there's all matter and no substance. You know, you need substance. And the good thing about the outpost is the story is true and we told as authentic as possible. And there's a lot of characters in the outpost. And there wasn't that many to start with. But when you're telling an authentic story and you get a call from a family member of one of the fallen, or you get a call from a family member of someone who served there and said, hey, my kid's gonna be in the movie too, right? And you're like, yes, of course they are. You know, <laughs> so you have to put it because you want to do the right thing. Totally. And it was the only movie that I've ever done where I would walk away and like get on my hands and knees and like pray that we do right by the families and that we're doing the right thing here. Yeah. There's and, a lot at um, stake. Yeah. A lot at stake. Uh, you know, I get, I get messages till today from, from veterans saying that they are, you know, who deal with PTSD saying that they uh, are finally able to show their families of what they actually went through. Cause it was such an authentic look at what the Afghanistan war is like. So, which has been really special. That's amazing, man. I thought the sound design was really great too. That's something I've oh, been yeah. noticing that you sound guys. Sound design can get nominated actually. Sound I, I pay attention. The, <laughs> yeah. The sound design, our sound team in Bulgaria, this guy, he's Chris Casavan. He's like the head of the sound department. He's a genius. And um, we, uh, yeah, it's actually one of the, one of the categories where there could be a nomination. I mean, the, the sound, that's what that's the one thing that killed me about having the movie released and we couldn't go to theaters because they were closed down. Yeah. I and mean, they were open in some states, but you couldn't give it the proper release. So I was like, man, I just hope people when they're watching it that they're like watching it with proper speakers and stuff and not on like a computer screen or something. Because you when you watch it on a big screen, and I've had the opportunity, you know, and the privilege to do that numerous times, um, it's a, it's, it's it's a different movie. Yeah, you know? I know what you mean. And that's something I think about too as a filmmaker. Like too. imagine watching the opening of Saving Private Ryan on a computer. I know. Yeah, it would be crazy. totally different. It's crazy. It, it, it's sometimes when I talk about certain movies, I always like, you know, if somebody's like, oh, I, I watched The Revenant, but I didn't really like it. I'm like, did you watch it at home on a small TV or did you watch it in the theater where you were like really immersed in, in the film? They're like, oh, I just watched it at home. I'm like, it's a different movie then. It's a different you know, experience. The worst, the worst answer I hate is when someone says, I watched it on my phone. Oh, I'm God. Like, I'm always like, <laughs> why? Why would you On do the that? train, commuting to work. Yeah, yeah my God. <laughs> you could watch like, a soap opera that water. way, but you can't watch, you know, The Outpost that way and really no. love it. You know? No, and, and The Outpost was a hell of an experience. You know, we, we had a lot of issues uh, when we shot The Outpost. But we had a lot of problems. You know, Scotty who broke his ankle. He did the whole movie almost with a broken ankle. Wow. Uh, Rod Lurie lost his son about a month before we started shooting. The oh, movie's actually dedicated to him. Wow. Uh, we called them RPGs, as Rod says. We were getting hit by RPGs. Yeah. But they kept going. And I've never seen a crew and a cast come together in a way where everybody, it was just this hive mentality. It was, it was so fascinating just, just to see how everyone worked together. I mean, we were, we were wrapping days two to three hours early and just making up shots. You know, like, for example, the um, the scene where they're, the guys right before the battle, they're on the phones and they're calling home. Yeah. That was all improvised. That was amazing. I that like was, that, that was thought of on the day. That was great. Yeah. Was, yeah. Your character was singing. Yeah. 
you know that that song that lullaby so john hill and i the real john hill are buddies now uh, i spent a lot of we spent a lot of time talking and we've hung out a couple of times and he came to dc for the screening for the families and um we both share an affinity for harley davidson so um but he actually that lullaby is the real lullaby that he would sing to his daughter every week when he would call home wow six seven eight nine ten that's right that's in my head always that's amazing yeah 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 that's the one and we were talking about it and i got it's a, i got a message from his daughter um who she was the she was the one when she was like 11 years old at the time when when it happened she, she said she's she wrote to me she's like you know thank you you know you played my dad well and also uh, that's really what my dad used to sing me every every week when he was when he was deployed that's really amazing man pretty that's, wild yeah that's something that's like it's it transcends just the, yeah the movie making experience into well, something you know else. they say uh this is something i learned from rod Lurie, and i've gotten really close to rod Lurie, and he's um he's he's a salt of the earth that guy i gotta say he really is um he's a talented director extremely and um he uh he he said something when we, when we had a screening that was last uh was last december when we did this screening for the gold star families in dc at the army theater um he said something where he said you know a person dies twice once when they actually leave this world and the second time when their names are spoken for the last time so what he says the the eight men including now hunter who has you know rod's son they're gonna stay alive you know their names are never gonna not be spoken again yeah and that's um if we did anything right you know while doing this movie it's definitely that absolutely you guys really did testament to this story actually i, I want to go and read the book at this point Oh yeah, the book is a hell. It's a hell. Well, the book also covers a, all the years of 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 uh, PRT. It was called PRT Camdash, and eventually was called Combat Outpost Keating when uh, Ben Keating was killed. Um, so the um, so, but yeah, the the book covered the book is really interesting because it covers all the years at Cop Keating, all of them. So it's a pretty big book, but it's got a lot of details in it. And uh, we had to take a little bit of creative license when making the movie because obviously you've got two hours to tell a movie, to tell a story, and you want to put these characters in. So we had to mix a little bit of the timeline, which we did it with the blessings of the family. And um, so we did that the best we can. But the book is incredible. And Jake, Jake Tapper is he's a hell of a guy, man. When especially when it comes to the troops. Nice. So uh, he was a guy, other person that I really enjoyed being in the trenches with. I got to see if it's uh it's available on Audible's. I consume most of my books on Audible's these days. Oh, you and me both, man. Between <laughs> reading script, I just actually listened to. Uh, I got into a new hobby. I got into archery. Uh, the past couple months. Nice. Highly recommend it. There's anyone, there's anyone listening to us out there, get into archery. It's like the ultimate Zen thing. I get, and, I got to get into archery. I've yeah. shot, I've shot a couple of arrows, not, you know, on a real archery level, but I actually own some land in Vermont with my brother. So we own like 80 acres of land out there. Oh, really? So if you guys ever need That's to awesome. shoot, shoot anything in Vermont. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Um, but great. yeah, so I, it would be a good place to do oh, some archery. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, I just, I'm speaking, you were talking about Audible. Audible, I just listened to Zen and the Art of Archery and Audible. I listen to everything on Audible too, in the car and, and the, uh, the and, um, and I highly recommend it. I, and I love Audible. Nice. I want to talk about some of the other Millennium franchise films. Like, I actually just recently saw Rambo 2019 that I knew oh. that um, you produced and, that was a great one as well. And I think you guys did really justice to the Rambo story. It exceeded my expectations of a Ram- Rambo is a movie that I really grew up loving Ram- Rambo and Rocky and, you know, just like every other kid in the Bronx, really. Look, I, it's funny. I got in, I started getting into archery cause it was about a month and a half ago. I was at Sly's house cause we're working on another project that I can't really talk about right now. But, um, he had a whole like archery set up in his backyard. And I was like, this is crazy. I'm like Rambo's house and he has an archery set up in his backyard. <laughs> we talked a little bit of archery and I was like, oh, I want to try this, you know? And that yeah. got me kind of really into it. But um, look, Rambo Last Blood, it was, it's it almost as a genre movie, the way that it was executed at the end, you know? Totally. It's, it's all sly. I mean, obviously we support him and we finance it and we produce it with him, but it's really sly, you know, and he's, um, he's the guy, you know what I mean? And, um, he knows what the rainbow fans want to see. And- you know, but I, I think, I think it really did justice to the character. I think it kind of showed the evolution of who John Rambo is, like what he would maybe be doing. It was like a realistic kind of, Hey, what would he be doing at this stage? And, his life and you know that that sort of thing there's a lot of little nuanced things that i really appreciated absolutely and you see like a day and you and you see that he has this awareness of his issues you know there's a great line in the movie it always sticks out to me where um he goes he goes you have a good heart he's talking about guys hearts being so black out there so you should be careful to not go to mexico to go look for her dad and she said and she said well your heart is good he goes, well, it's not, but I keep a lid on it. Yes. And, and, and Sly's characters from Rocky to Rambo to a bunch of them, he always brings this primal, innate, like this, like this innate uh, primal instinct of man, you know, to it. Like we get revenge when somebody wrongs us. We need to, we want, when somebody hurts our breaks our heart, we break there. Like there's, yes. there's just, and it's, it's so visceral and, uh, and slide does that so well. And to be honestly, you know, I've had the opportunity and the privilege to work with him for the past almost 10 years between the expendables and rainbow. And, um, there's so much to learn from that guy. I mean, he's a hell of a filmmaker and a hell of a writer and a mind. Uh- so um, I think there's a lot of people that don't give him credit. People that know, know, but he's, you know, I mean, I think he's a brilliant guy. I he's mean, a genius. Yeah. He's a genius. That's just, he, like, he really is. And he's a quiet guy. You know what I mean? He keeps to himself. He's always kept his thing. I really respect that. He's a family man. And nice. um, I really, really respect the guy. I got to say. I mean, I, I, I've been, I, I mean, I've been in the, working in the guy's presence for, for many years. And still, when I see him, like, I'm like, holy shit, this is crazy. You know, it's pretty awesome. awesome. That's pretty cool. And it's funny because I I know you have an acting background. I will say that when I was a kid, I think that was the first time something processed that, 
oh, there's acting involved because, you know, I loved Rocky and I loved Rambo and, but they're two very different characters. And oh yeah. I'm like, completely. I'm like this guy. And it was like the first time I had an awareness as a very young kid that like, oh, this guy transforms himself and there's something different, not just about the fact that he's wearing like a bandana has a different build and is toning a machine gun. There's something even in his demeanor that's different in Rambo and Rocky. Rambo and Rocky are very different. They're very different. They're very different characters. Um, you know, uh, I mean, Sly could speak to that better than anyone, but I think that they're very different. And I grew up watching those movies and I was obsessed with Rocky. When I was a, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Rocky. Obsessed. Same. And um, yeah, who wasn't? Right? <laughs> I mean, the guy from the Smithsonian. Yeah. Um, but it was crazy, you know, speaking, you, you mentioned me as an actor, I, I, I've been acting since I was a kid and I kind of put a lid on it for a while and came out recently and I'll do it here and there. But, um, one of the best things that happened to me is after they, when Sly watched the outpost, he wrote me an email and told me that he thought I was really good in the movie. And I was like, I could die now. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty cool, man. So you've met some, you've met some legends in your day heyday like yeah. Sylvester Stallone yeah, Chuck Norris did you ever think oh, you would Chuck meet Norris. when you were a kid did you ever think you would be meeting Chuck Norris I when I was a kid I never think you know when we casted Chuck Norris in Expendables 2 you can ask Avi this at the time I was still Avi's I was helping a little bit in casting but I was still really Avi's assistant it was, it was over almost eight year nine years ago we were looking to they wanted to cast someone else in, in the movie and I was like what about Chuck Norris and so I, I went into Avi's office. I'm like, I know I'm just your assistant, but I think Chuck Norris could be really cool. And I was like, oh, he has no value. I was like, oh, you don't know. So I went to the computer and I printed out like a stack like this thick of all the Chuck Norris jokes that are online. That's awesome. And I showed it to Avi. And that's why we added a Chuck Norris joke in the movie. That's awesome. The Cobra one. I don't know if you know, it's like Chuck Norris once got bit by a cobra. And after three days of agony, the cobra finally died. <laughs> that's right <laughs> it's funny how the chuck nor i'm albanian and i remember going to visit some of my cousins in albania and some of my younger cousins were telling me chuck norris jokes in albanian that's amazing <laughs> but they call him chuck, chuck Nori- they call him chuck norisi it's like they're like hey Nordisi. do you know what chuck norisi did it's <laughs> funny when chuck norris does push-ups he doesn't push himself up he pushes the earth down that's right <laughs> <laughs> yeah so my, my favorite one that i heard once was that it, there's a his legend says that Chuck Norris once lost a fight to a pirate, and he goes, but it's not true. Chuck Norris made that up so he can lure more pirates to him. <laughs> he never liked him anyway. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So, is there any more Expendables movies in the pipeline that we could look forward to? There are some. There Excellent. Are. Uh, there's, they're going to have a little bit of a different flavor. I think that. The novelty a little bit wore off as far as like just having all the guys together. You got to, you got to bring something else to it. Sure. So we're figuring all that stuff out now and trying to get the gang together. But yes, the answer is yes. We will be doing more expendables. Nice. And spinoffs possibly. And is there any other Millennium works that you'd like to highlight that we can look forward to? We've got a lot in the pipeline. We're going to do another Has Fallen movie, which is great. We've already developed it. And we're in the we're actually we're in the middle of developing it. With Gerard uh, Butler. Yeah, we've got a couple others that I can't really mention right now. We start prep this month on a movie called The Bizu, which I, I think I mentioned it earlier. It's a genre film. It's a very elevated genre film, though. Um, 
it's a it's a horror film that takes place in the Hasidic community and explores Jewish demonology. So you know most of the demon movies and possession movies are all that take place with the Catholic Church. It's kind of this follows it in this way more of Kabbalah. Interesting. And uh, it's really interesting. It's a really good story too. It's kind of like Hereditary meets The Conjuring. They'll have the scares of The Conjuring, you know, like those commercial type scares, but the story is really elevated. Uh, and the backstory and the mythology is really elevated because, um, look, in a regular possession story, you've got the bad version is you've got a family that moves to a house or something weird about the house. You got this kid that's like overly sensitive that like notices things and people are like, no, don't worry. It's nothing. It's just the old house. It's the creek or whatever. They get possessed. They start to do weird shit, like throw up and pee in the floor and whatever, you know, stuff starts flying all over the place. Finally, the priest, a priest is like, yo, this is a possession. You know, and then the priest shows up and does the exorcism and that's it. Right. Our whole take to it is demons are like these thousands and thousands of year old entities. Why do they come here? They, they, they don't come here to just possess someone and make them throw up. There's a reason why they come to this earth. And we have the concept of evil is only allowed into this world if we let it in. We, based on our choices, we decide how much or how little evil is in the world. So taking that and threading it into a story that takes place in Borough Park. It's going to be something really special. I think actually can be one of our next franchises. That's awesome, man. And that, and that uh, is still being developed. It hasn't been shot yet? or It hasn't. It, it, the movie's developed. We're out to cast right now. We start prepping in 15 days, for, and we'll shoot in January. Nice. Sounds exciting. So Yeah. It's, uh, look, I, I love genre films, and I wasn't getting scared anymore, so me and my friend just decided to write one ourselves. We wanted to get more scared. And... Um, and this is the product that's, that came from it. I feel like you have to have something with geometric patterns because that's important in the Kabbalah. And that's something that I'm Absolutely. sort of interested in. You're starting to hit the nail on the head a little bit. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, all sorts of stuff like that. Nice. There's something else I want to talk about that I know that's something that's uh, imp- an important topic to you, which is piracy mm. in the industry. And you, you mentioned that you testified in front of Congress to combat piracy. And I know that we have some sort of archaic practices still like, we're, you know, things are still in effect as if it's the 1990s, even though that's a whole lifetime ago. So, Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the digital millennium copyright act, um, which is an anti-piracy act. That was an act that was put in in 1998 and hasn't been updated since. So we're having these issues of takedown and stay down. Uh, so they opened up a DMCA this year to do a series of hearings with the Senate. And I was in one of the hearings and um, I've been dealing a lot on the Hill. We're trying to make the laws of piracy a little more strict in the U.S. because, look, within the copyright industry, the copyright industry is a one point three trillion dollar a year industry. Wow. Trillion. We have we employ five point seven million people. About 2.2 million each is for music and television. We're talking about 6% of the GDP. Wow. So we're not, this is no small thing when we're fighting for copyright in the US. Yeah. We matter. And creativity matters. And I don't like it when people say, if it's on the internet, it should be free. Because to be honest, excuse my French, it's bullshit. Yeah. I think that people should get paid for their work so that we can go make better stuff. And if you want to enjoy something, you got to pay for it. For me, there's no difference between stealing a movie online or walking into Best Buy and stealing a DVD. There's no difference in 2020. There's 100%. no difference between physical and digital. 
So we try to create awareness. It also starts in the education system. I work with a group called Create a Future. That's headed by Ruth Vitali, who's a very good friend of mine, who also works with ed education and teaching copyright from to, to students from a young age and uh, the importance of it. And, that ha and we go around and speak to universities and stuff like that and really advocate that we want to protect our shit. And it's, um, it's something that's important. I wish more creatives in the community would get involved. It's difficult and it's hard with companies like Google and uh, YouTube, which is the same company and Facebook and all that stuff who kind of created this smoke screen saying that uh, Hollywood is, you know, trying to censor the internet, you know, because of, we're enforcing us up. Google makes a lot of money from traffic, whether it's legal traffic or legal traffic, but they don't want to screw things up for themselves. Gotcha. And look, the largest illegal streaming website in the world is YouTube. Interesting. Because a lot of the times they have unlicensed music on there, unlicensed movies, unlicensed clips. And so they have tools to be able to work through that stuff, but to get, to get access to those tools is like a fight. Like I had to go to Washington to stand, to sit in front of YouTube in, in a round table and say, give us the tools like to do it. You guys didn't let us have it, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it's important. You just, you're not supposed to steal. Like, yeah. you know, and I think if there's stricter laws, look, the way I look at it is like this. If you live in your neighborhood and you got this stop sign that you run it all the time because there's never anybody around. The one day that you get pulled over and you get a ticket, You'll never run that stop sign again. doesn't matter if you're driving at two o'clock in the morning. You won't. That's true. Because you got caught. You got in trouble for it. And that's all it is. So we do that. We go after people that steal our stuff. Um, and we make them stand in front of a judge and say that they'll never do it again. Yeah. We don't go after their money. We don't go after that stuff. We just want people to stop stealing. It seems like a reasonable enough request. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> And especially a lot of people that do it, yeah, they have a diff they have a more of a lax kind of approach to it. It's not some of these people they would never go into their neighbor's house and steal their shit, but like, mm -hmm. but for some reason they they sort of separate, um, you know, that it's okay to do that. I don't know, you know, yeah. and I I think it's, I mean, things have changed radically so much. Like when I was a kid, I was going to record stores and buying CDs and looking at the liner notes, and then. I built up a DVD collection. I was the first kid in my high school to have a DVD player. And back in 1997, I bought a DVD player when they were like $700. I worked at a, I worked two jobs. You know, DVD or Laserdisc? Or uh, uh, it was a DVD player that was 700 bucks. But yeah, Laserdisc was I a mean, few. That must have been like DVD players, I think only came out in 97, right? Yeah. So I bought, I bought one of the, like an early DVD player and it was huge looking and there was only a small amount of releases. The first movie that I bought on DVD was fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And wow. it was like for 30 bucks every week I had to buy like a $30 DVD. So I think I was already, and also I came from the generation where when I was a kid, there was a, a video store in the Bronx that me and my family used to go to and we had a membership card. Like, you know, younger kids don't even know about that. Like, you know, oh, you mean like a blockbuster membership. Yeah. It was like a blockbuster membership, but it was more of like a neighborhood video store. And it was like the neighborhood yeah, video store. Yeah, I, I, dude, I remember going to blockbuster or they're like on Saturday night and you try to get there as early as you can. So, because you want the new, the, like the wall of the new releases. Yeah. And you're like, Is it behind this one? Is it behind this one? <laughs> and then buying the waiting online with the candy. Exactly. 
There's a great South Park episode about Randy bought Randy Marsh buying a, a blockbuster. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll check it out. Well, I guess all I'm saying is that I did grow up just, you know, buying movies and, you know, you, you associate, there's a cost for paying for movies, going to the movies, yeah. watching, watching them on VHS back in the day, then buying DVDs. I do talk to some younger kids that, you know, for some reason, I think they think that everything should be free. I don't know. You know? Yeah. Maybe it's a mentality thing. I think, look, the way that they also consume content across social channels and YouTube, there's a lot of free content out there. And they probably just think that everything should be free. Yeah. There's those on that. Plus, there's access. So I do believe that windowing and everything needs to be working on because the world is small and people talk. Like, I don't think that there should be a reason why Game of Thrones should come out a year later, the new season in Australia. You know, right. especially when social media and there's spoilers everywhere. So that's stuff. There's stuff that we got to work out. And it's being worked out, you know, and the windows are getting smaller and stuff like that. But um, all in all, we shouldn't be stealing. Plus, if people want more new cool stuff, new content, we need to be able to finance it. Exactly. (laughs) When you steal, you know, Expendables 3 was stolen and and leaked onto the internet a month before it was released. And by opening day, there were 60 million downloads. We've had companies that went out of business, independent distributors in different territories that went out of business as a result. Yeah. That's crazy. So let's yeah. talk. Let's talk genre for a minute, because you guys are known. Genre. For, yeah, oh, yeah, you guys are known for making specific types of films, and actually, I think it's really cool what you guys do. Um, because, like I said, there's a lot of I've criticized certain other filmmakers that you know they'll make action films, but I feel like there's just like a split second shot there and a split second shot there, and you you kind of get lost in the sauce. But I I think you guys do a good job of really establishing those characters, and then. But you, you're also releasing horror films as well as action. and Yeah, well, look, our bread and butter is making action films. And now more than ever, I think it's important to make action films that say something because they're the most widely accepted you know, movies, I mean, that are watched on a massive scale. So like I said earlier, like senseless action doesn't make sense. If you've got a good story, you got a good message, good characters, it makes sense for us. As Avi Lerner always says, a movie needs heart. A movie needs heart. And we really pride ourselves in that in our characters. So, I mean, if you look at the journey of Gerard Butler's character, Mike Fanning, in the Has Fallen movies, it's a very, very emotional journey. You know, same thing with Rambo. Uh, it's a very emotional journey that he went on. If you really think about it, remove all of the action for a second. It's, these are like heavy stories, you know? And now as far as getting into uh, genre and horror, we don't normally do it. We do it here and there. But now we're looking at stuff, you know, that's elevated a little bit more. Not, not really. Go- we're not into doing the gory. We did Leatherface a long time ago and it didn't really work out. We're not really into doing the gory horror, but more supernatural stuff, yeah. uh, ghost stories and something that can really... Um, Movies a la Sinister and The Ring and stuff like that. It has this commercial appeal, but it'll scare the shit out of you at the same time. And um, and just a good story. I think if you I think if you're telling just a good story and you're but then you add the elements like the action elements, for example, in an action movie, and the action 
the elements are actually helping tell the story and not just a mindless action film, action scene, then you've got something to write home about. Absolutely. You know? So because, look, there's been a bunch of movies, action movies that came out this past year that when you watch them, you're like, okay, they're literally it's two guys talking, then an explosion happens and a gunfight. And that's pretty much it. Yeah, and, um, I agree. You've got to, your story's as strong as your characters and what your characters are reacting to. And I think with action films, the most important character is the bad guy. I think your movie's only as good as your bad guy because your protagonist is reacting to the bad guy. That's true. And I think the best bad guys are the ones that think that they're really good. Totally agree. Uh, that ties into my point that I think uh, I think the root of all evil is justification. I think people yeah. could justify anything. I actually learned that from a documentary. I don't know if you ever seen the documentary Cocaine Cowboys. It had, of course, they had this. It had the woman Esmeralda Blanco. You remember her, the yeah. godmother? Of course, the godmother. Yeah, and she was she was a pretty ruthless woman. And you know, they said. At first, there was like one part, and this is real life. It was a documentary, so it was one part where they killed a little kid by accident in Miami during, like, you know, that got caught in the crossfire of like a shootout. This kid Johnny Castro, really sad story. Her guys in the documentary that worked for her was like, yeah, at first she was upset about it, but then she got used to it. You know, I was like, wow, that's crazy. You know, and it just showed me that it's like you could justify, like, you know, people. People, once they start that path of just justifying bad behavior, it could be yeah, a really slippery slope. I, it's so funny. I just had that thought today. Interesting. About justifying. When you justify something enough, you become numb to it. Yeah. You that's become what I'm numb about. to the decision. And it's just like, oh, okay. You know, it's just you do another bad thing. And that's how I, I totally agree with you that justification could be the root of evil. It's really, it's really, um, it really is. Yeah. And kind of like to your point about genre in general, I, I totally agree with you what you're saying about the story. I think the genres are just the arena for the story to exist. You know? Absolutely. Did you see that show Queen's Gambit on Netflix? No. Is it good? Really good. It's about chess. I mean, it takes place around the world of chess. But if you just replaced the, the character is really good. The main character is really good. And the characters of the, uh, in the whole show were really good and the acting was stellar minus a few things but it was centered around this girl who was an orphan who was a chess pro who's a chess prodigy and she's going throughout her world and she's fighting her own demons at the same time while basically mastering the game of chess and playing all over the world and eventually she plays in russia during the cold war and all that stuff but um what's interesting is you could have taken chess and you could have switched it out for archery. I say archery because we were talking about archery. Earlier. Totally. It doesn't matter. I actually don't think you can switch out chess for archery because they're very good, but you can switch it for another board game that, that's, that you have to use your brain and there's attacking and all of that. But it's the idea was that the character, we cared about the character's journey, you know, and they were able, then once you take it, even when you're filming something as boring as a chess game, there's so much behind it because you know where she's come from, you know where this person's come from, where they're going, what they want, and all of that stuff. So, so that's um, so that's uh, uh, 
I think it's a testament to character. That's so you know, important. And journey and arc. And I, I'm saying the normal buzzwords of storytelling right now, but they really are the the the, the, the cornerstones of of filmmaking. What would you you, know? you I mean you you guys pulled it off in the outpost, man. You know, to, to circle it back to the outpost, to, that's where I was impressed with. There were so many characters, but then you're you really cared about each of them and you know the outcome of yeah. what's going on with which with, with uh, you, you really do yeah you totally i appreciate you saying that but you really do you really care um about these young men you yeah. know and um and the situation that they're in you're like what the fuck like what <laughs> God, this, yeah. i know this is crazy. and they know that it's crazy they have an awareness of how crazy it is it's like yeah. what is going on I, yeah i love even how it was just set up with like you talked about like you know like with the text in the beginning about like custer and it's just about uh you know it's just uh yeah, just like you see this outpost in the middle of nowhere. I would have never thought that it was shot at Warner Brothers, by the way. I thought it for sure it would have just been shot in a foreign country. You definitely sold it that it was like we Afghanistan. Shot, we, we shot it in a foreign country. Okay. Okay. So we shot the whole movie in Bulgaria. Okay. It was shot in Bulgaria. I don't know why. It was about 45 minutes outside of our studio. Oh, okay. Okay. So that makes sense. Okay. I don't know. We shot the whole thing in Europe. Okay. So then I don't know. I guess when you said earlier that I guess 90% of it or something at, at Warner's. No, we shot 90% of the movie in Warner's. Oh, in Warner's. In Warner's. I thought you said, <laughs> I misunderstood. Oh, you thought I said, you thought I said Warner Brothers? Yeah, I was like, was it shot on the lot? I was like, that doesn't look oh, like no, a lot. No, no, no. Yeah. So now it makes sense now. It makes sense to do Rod Lurie's like, I want to shoot the movie in Warner's. Yeah. Like, oh my Warner's. God. Okay. Now I understand yeah, everything. Yeah. yeah it was brilliantly Warner's shot. And I love, I love Warner's. Yeah. I love, you know, they're there, but they're, but they're, you have to execute them right because in the edit, you don't have a lot of room for error. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, it's kind of the Hitchcock way of working, of determining the film ahead of time versus building mm -hmm. it in the edit room. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all about the wonder. And then it's funny because in 1917 came out before, and we were like, oh man, we're doing the wonder thing also. <laughs> but look, 1917 was a great movie. It was a cool movie, it was executed well. But what was the story about a guy that needed to deliver a letter? Like, what was that? How much more did we learn about the character? Yeah. Is there any other things that we should look out for or that you're working on that you want to kind of discuss? Um, at the moment, no. I mean, we've got a lot of big stuff in the pipeline. We're actually in the middle of AFM right now. Today's the first day. So I've been doing my meetings. But um, you'll see uh, some announcements coming in the next few weeks. Nice. Well, Jonathan, we really appreciate having you on Globe Screen. Uh, we implore everybody to watch The Outpost and every other Millennium film release. And uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This is great, man. It's good to just talk film.